Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What's up, y'all? Welcome to the show. We got a little bit of everything in today's show. And I think y'all are going to like it. That's what I think. Um, so, let me tell you what you have to look forward to. Shut off the music, bitch. Okay, it's shut off. There we go. Uh, let me tell you what you have to look forward to. We have... A bombshell story, if I don't say so myself, about Israeli spyware. Um, you're going to learn all the details of that story. It really is something else. Um, it's amazing that this was allowed, or is allowed, I should say. Uh, it's, I mean, they're basically just openly um, helping the world's worst criminals. And uh, it appears to be legal, so or in, at least in a gray area. So a lot of substantive stories, like the Israeli spyware story, minimum wage workers can't afford rent anywhere. We're going to talk about that. Yes, I'll get to the Rand Paul and Dr. Fauci scream fest. The media was drooling over Jeff Bezos's joyride. We'll talk about that. Uh, lame-ass joyride, if I don't say so myself. We'll talk about Ben and Jerry's stopping the sale of their ice cream in the occupied territories. A lot to say about that. As I'm going through the show here, 
I realized today is a show where I don't know if I have any story that I'm not super duper interested in. So I got I got to talk about the Rokana thing. I got to talk about Candace Owens. I got to talk about Neil deGrasse Tyson versus Ben Shapiro on trans issues. Tomato Lorenzo made it into today's show. Um, Rick Wiles is back from the hospital, and apparently he's uh, back on his bullshit, talking about how Biden is a communist or something. (laughs) Oh, amazing. It's also amazing. Anyway, uh, so, oh, and medical debt, too. I got a story on medical debt later that you're not going to want to miss. So, all right, without further ado, take a little sip of myself, bitch. All right, let's get started. So quite a story was just released by The Guardian. Um, This is huge. And this actually, in my opinion, is only rivaled by, you know, the Edward Snowden, Glenn Greenwald, NSA leaks. Like, this seems like the logical follow-up to that story. Now, of course, since uh, this this particular story implicates the Israeli government, you don't have much, uh, you know, you don't have many stories being written on it um, from other media outlets. And it's a shame because this story really is gigantic and it's super important. So um, the title of the Guardian piece is Revealed, Leak Uncovers Global Abuse of Cyber Surveillance Weapon, Spyware Sold to Authoritarian Regimes Used to Target Activists, Politicians, and Journalists, Data Suggests. So, I mean, I know you guys know what clickbait is. Honestly, I think that that headline is like anti-clickbait because the story is a hell of a lot more explosive than even that title would have you believe. So let me walk you through this. There's this Israeli spyware, and it's hacking spyware, and it's called Pegasus. Now, this spyware is um, really malicious and nefarious, and it's It does what's called a zero-click attack, which means you don't even need to click click a bad link in order for this spyware to get into your phone. They just have to send you something, and then boom, your phone is completely compromised. It's been used to penetrate even the most up-to-date iPhones running on the latest version of iOS. That's terrifying because iPhone, as I'm sure many of you know, they sort of pride themselves on being the most secure of anything you can get. And with this particular spyware, you don't have to click on anything. They just send something to you and boom, your whole thing is compromised. And they could, uh, they immediately have access to all of your text messages, all of your iMessages, all of the photos in your library. They could turn your microphone on and off. I mean, this is like a next level sort of intrusion. So, Wait until, wait until I get to the names of some of the people who are being spied on, or at least we're on the list uh, of the company that made Pegasus, which is, again, the name of the, the spyware. Now, when they did forensic analysis of a, of a small subset, I forget how many, how many uh, people it was, 60 or 70, something like that. They did, they did an analysis of their phones, the 60 or 70 people who were on the list, and about half of them 
were infected, or there was evidence that they were infected with this spyware. So the list is 50,000 people long, and they say, hey, it's not necessarily the case that all of them are being spied on, but they're on the list of people that clients of this company were interested in. So in other words, they're either being spied on or at some point in the future will likely be spied on. So again, they're targeting human rights activists, journalists, lawyers across the world um, who've, been a tar- who've been a target of authoritarian governments, and even like politicians, prime ministers, presidents. It, so this, it doesn't just affect iPhones. It also affects uh, Android devices. Um, the leak, as I said, contains about 50,000 phone numbers. They say also hundreds of business executives, religious figures, academics, NGO employees, uh, union officials, and as I said, cabinet ministers, presidents, prime ministers. Um, the list even contains the numbers of close family members of one country's ruler. So in other words, there's some dictator somewhere uh, they don't say specifically who it is yet, but this person was effectively trying to spy on their family members to see what they were doing. Now, overall, more than 180 journalists are listed in the data. That includes reporters, editors, and executives at the Financial Times, CNN, the New York Times, France 24, The Economist, the Associated Press, and Reuters, which, by the way, at least as of right now, a lot of these outlets haven't picked up this story, which makes me feel like, are you insane? Like, they're literally targeting you, and you haven't picked this story up yet? Uh, so here's where, I mean, it's already dark. Here's where it turns super dark. There's a phone number of a freelance Mexican reporter, Cecilio Pineda Berto. His name was found on the list. He was of interest to a Mexican client for this Israeli company selling a spyware. And he was murdered. He was murdered, and his killers were able to locate him at a car wash. So, I mean, all we have now is the name on the list and the time that the name was on the list, and then a couple weeks later, this person was killed. So we don't have the hard evidence yet, but it's a lot of circumstantial evidence. And um, it appears like this spyware was sold to somebody who then murdered a journalist. Now, listen, I'm, I'm no genius or anything, but that sounds to me like it's either some corrupt government official who was murdering somebody because they didn't want this person to uncover their corruption, or you know, the Israeli company selling Pegasus was working with drug cartels. Now, they swear up and down. I mean, it's absurd on its face, but they swear up and down. No, no, we only sell this spyware so that terrorists and criminals can be targeted. And it's only sold to, like, official law enforcement. And we have a process where uh, everybody's vetted, and the Israeli government has to approve the sale of the spyware to, you know, whoever we're selling it to, whoever the client is. First of all, I don't trust the, uh, <laughs> the moral or ethical decisions of the Israeli government at all. <laughs> They're wildly immoral and unethical. But beyond that, I, just, I simply don't believe that. 
because as you can see, this list is really long and it's got a lot of people on it and it's got a lot of sketchy clients. So um, the clients include Azerbaijan, so the government of Azerbaijan, deeply authoritarian. We've talked about this guy before. Um, Bahrain, Kazakhstan, a lot of clients in Mexico, could be government officials and or drug lords. Morocco, Rwanda, Saudi Arabia, Hungary, India, the United Arab Emirates. Uh, it was used by Saudi Arabia, get this, another huge bombshell here. It, the spyware was used by Saudi Arabia and its close ally, the UAE, to target the phones of the closest associates of Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post journalist who was murdered. And so the spyware, we know for sure, was used in the months after his death to, to make sure that his family members and the people closest to him weren't digging too much or, and di or didn't want revenge or something to that effect. Uh, even the Turkish prosecutor investigating Khashoggi's death was also targeted with this spyware. I mean, again, this is huge. It's, what we're uncovering here, or what The Guardian uncovered with the help of Amnesty International and some others, is basically a global spy network. It's a global surveillance network. So more people who are on the list. If you think anybody's immune to this, you would be wrong. The South African president was on the list, and he appears, uh, or this person, Cyril Ramaphosa, I don't know if that's a, a man or a woman, forgive me. Um, this person appears to have been selected by Rwanda in 2019, so Rwanda wanted to spy on the South African president. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, appears to have been selected as a person of interest by Morocco in 2019. So somebody, a client in Morocco, whether it's the government or some businessman or whatever, wanted to spy on the French president. The French president was on the list of the 50,000 names. And listen, as I already told you, in the forensic analysis, about half the people of the 50,000 were already being spied on. And probably the ones who, the, the remainder, most of them would eventually be spied on. That's crazy. So the French prime minister, or French president, was on the list. Wow. Uh, the World Health Organization's director general was on the list. And again, somebody in Morocco uh, was the client who wanted to spy on this person. Get this. Uh, the prime minister of Lebanon, who actually just resigned recently, this person was on the list, and they were selected by the UAE in 2018 and 2019. I don't know how many of you remember this, but there was a time when the prime minister of Lebanon was kidnapped, was kidnapped by Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And now we know he was on the list. Hey, let's spy on this person. So the spyware that was used that led to the kidnapping of, of a prime minister was sold by this Israeli company. Uh, the king of Morocco, who was selected as a person of interest in 2019, uh, was apparently selected by security forces in his own country. So again, now here's an example of, there's a, you know, a monarch or a head of state or an authoritarian ruler who uh, people, the security forces in their own country were like, we're going to spy on him. Now, I'm sure the King did not want that, which means what? This could have been an example of an Arab Spring type situation where it's like they're trying to monitor him and maybe they're plotting, you know, uh, to do something at some point like overthrow him. Morocco's prime minister, again, so it was Morocco's king and Morocco's prime minister. They were selected as people of interest, 2018 and 2019, 
from elements within their own country. Um, Imran Khan, the Prime Minister of Pakistan, was selected by India in 2019 to spy on. Felipe Calderon of Mexico, that's the former Mexican president, his number was leaked in 2016 and 2017 um, to a Mexican client, and it was at the time when his wife was running to be president. And again, we don't know yet, but this could be from rival, rival political factions, uh, different elements of the government, or drug cartels that were spying. This is out of this world, and um, this I found interesting too. Robert Malley, a longtime American diplomat who was chief negotiator on the U.S.-Iran deal, he uh, was spied on by Morocco in 2019. And um, by the way, the name of the company is, I think, NSO, the Israeli company that sells Pegasus. NSO said that its government clients are prevented from deploying its software against U.S. numbers because it's been made, quote, technically impossible. So at least in theory, the idea is U.S. officials, their government officials at least, have some sort of security that could even block this particular malware. I don't know if that's true because it, my, based on my reading of the situation, basically everything that this company said was bullshit. Oh, it's only used for criminals and terrorists. Oh, everything is vetted, vetted through the Israeli government. Um, so, by the way, I love this. They say, we strictly vetted the human rights record of everybody who we sold this spyware to. Did you not hear who's on? Saudi Arabia is on the list. Azerbaijan is on the list. Who are you kidding? You vetted their human rights record, found that they're terrible, and then still decided to sell them the spyware anyway. So, uh, listen, it brings me no pleasure that, you know, the Guardian did a phenomenal job here, and Amnesty International uh, was one of the original people who got the list, and then I think some, other, some others were involved. But it brings me no pleasure and no joy at all that, again, you have to come to a YouTube show with a loudmouth moron like myself in order to learn the basics of this story. This just shows, I mean, this just shows you. The media really does manufacture consent, and the media really is establishment propaganda. Because in a sane world, this is a bombshell story that they talk about for a week. And I haven't heard anything on CNN, MSNBC, or Fox News, and most even print outlets haven't touched this yet. So massive credit to The Guardian. Remember, it was The Guardian that originally did the Snowden leaks with Glenn Greenwald. So they have a record of actually, you know, breaking some super important stories. But this time the media is not running with this. And it's amazing because even the Snowden story they ran with, you know, a bunch of WikiLeaks they ran with. But they're not running with this one. And that's absolutely infuriating. But, I mean, it's huge. There's a huge leak. And, by the way, they're releasing more and more over time other people who are on the list. And my guess is, even though they say, oh, it's impossible to find Americans with this or, you know, American government officials, my guess is there's going to be a lot of Americans on, the, on this list. And there's going to be uh, some bombshell ones some, you know, top-ranking U.S. officials. Because everybody, internationally, regardless of who's an ally with who or whatever, everybody wants to spy on everybody. But now we know this company, totally unscrupulous. They pretend like they have this really thorough process, completely unscrupulous in who they're selling this spyware to and then who it's used on. 
You know, oh, if you really vetted their human rights record, then why the hell was it over 180 journalists who were spied on? Just so everybody understands, the journalists in question are real journalists. These are people who are looking into corruption in their respective countries, looking into war and things of that nature, exposing people in high-level positions, uh, you know, people who were looking into the drug war. So you have human rights activists and journalists and completely innocent people on this list because the fact of the matter is, as a general rule, anybody who wants to use the spyware is not going to be using it solely on criminals and terrorists. They're going to use it on whoever they feel threatens their power in any way, shape, or form. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. That's exactly what we're learning here. And the people on the list, it's amazing who's on the list. Eventually, it comes for everybody. I mean, the French president is on the list. That's insane. So, I don't know why this story isn't bigger. I don't know why more people aren't talking about it. And I don't know why this is allowed. By the way, everybody go to Edward Snowden's Twitter feed because he's been going off about this, and obviously he's sort of an expert now on, on these issues. Um, and he's got ideas as to how you fix this and what you ban and, and all that. I'm not an expert. I can't give you the answers on that front. All I know is this is a dirty, dirty industry. They're absolute brazen liars pretending it's, you know, everything's on the up and up. And... Uh, This needs to be called out, this needs to be exposed, and this needs to be stopped. And um, it's amazing that this sort of spyware, and it's just so casually being used and sold to the worst of the worst. Authoritarian dictators, murderers, murderers, likely drug lords. Is there anybody they didn't sell it to? We're probably going to learn that, you know, one of the top clients are uh, legit terrorist groups, not just authoritarian governments and dictators, but like some flat-out terrorists because they're, clearly they're completely unscrupulous with it. And so we'll see. More leaks are coming out. The first batch of leaks included the French president. If it only gets more explosive from here, then Jesus Christ. All right. Next. So we got some new numbers on the minimum wage. I need to share this with everybody. This is really something else. There is no state, country, or city in the country where a full-time minimum wage worker working 40 hours a week can afford a two-bedroom rental, a report from the National Low-Income Housing Coalition showed. A full-time minimum wage worker can afford a one-bedroom rental in only 7% of all U.S. counties, 218 counties out of more than 3,000 nationwide. That's incredible. The federal minimum wage is $7.25, but the report showed that a worker would need to earn $24.90 per hour in order to afford a two-bedroom home at fair market rent. And a $20.40 housing wage would be needed for a one-bedroom. Fair market rents are government estimates of what a person should expect to pay for a modest home in their area. A housing wage 
is the amount a worker would need to earn to afford a home without spending more than 30% of their income on rent. Wow. So two-bedroom apartment, minimum wage worker can't afford that anywhere in the United States of America. A one-bedroom apartment, only 7% of all U.S. counties can a minimum wage worker afford that. This comes out, I think it came out the exact same day or maybe one day apart from when Biden said, oh, capitalism is working and we're making it work, you know, to the benefit of everybody. What are you talking about? Other numbers I saw the other day. U.S. wealth and income inequality is almost literally off the charts compared to every other developed country. You think this system is working? You work full-time and you can't even put a roof over your head? Or what are you going to do? Squeeze a family of four into a studio apartment? This is criminal, man. This is criminal. Brianna Joy Gray made a great point to Crystal Ball and I on our last podcast. She said, you know society is in trouble when you have people who followed the rules, did everything they were supposed to do, and they still can't make it. You know society is crumbling, falling apart, when people nominally do everything right, and they fall behind, and they can't make it. That's exactly where we're at right now. Exactly where we're at right now. And by the way, you might look at this and say, whoa, that means $15 minimum wage isn't even enough. What I would do to deal with this is have some sort of supplemental UBI along with raising the minimum wage, and I would try to have near universal unionization. Because what we know for sure, based on U.S. history, but also if you look at the Scandinavian region right now, there are a lot of countries that they have near universal unionization and they have a thriving working class. So if you have unionization, if you have a higher minimum wage, and if you have a universal basic income, now we're talking about redistribution where people, if they work a full-time job, they're going to be okay. What we have now is not that. It's not even close to that. And we've just got, a lot of people have just gotten used to this. You know what I mean? Like plenty of people, if you bring this fact up to them, their response is, just work your way up the ladder. So they look at this and they're not even bothered by it, or they say something like, minimum wage jobs are all for, you know, people in high school in the summer. They don't need more than this. But if you look at the data, that's actually not true. There are many minimum wage workers. The majority of minimum wage workers are not the teenager on summer vacation. And also you have this issue where if you tell everybody, hey, wake up, work your hardest, get up that ladder, get a promotion, and earn more money. If you tell everybody that, and let's say everybody takes your advice. Everybody wakes up, they work as hard as they can, they uh, really put their all into their job, whatever their job is. Is everybody going to get the promotion? So if you work hard, you always get the promotion. That's really the argument. Everybody's going to get the promotion? No, because then there's nobody left to do those jobs. So then the question becomes, do you want to pay the people who are working those jobs enough so they can survive? And if you answer no to that, you're a giant prick. You're an asshole. I see no way around that. So, I mean, again, this stuff is astonishing. If the minimum wage kept up with productivity, it would be over $20 an hour already. Now, you could say, hey, some of that productivity actually isn't because of the workers. Some of it is because of 
technology, fair enough, but it's still an astonishing fact. Also, if it was just equal to what it was in 1968, it would be over $10 an hour today. So the minimum wage today is worth less than the minimum wage was in 1968. Think about that. That's amazing. The category of working poor should not exist. You know, probably the category of poor should not exist. We have the ability, we have the productivity, we have the capacity to make everybody okay. Now, I'm not saying everybody gets a mansion and a pool in the backyard or whatever. Of course not. But what I am saying is we need a reasonable distribution of resources. I'm astonished at the fact that there are some people who are against redistribution of income, redistribution of wealth. It seems like the most obvious thing in the world to do. Jeff Bezos within a decade, might become a trillionaire. Trillionaire. And by the way, when we hit that number, some people on the left are going to say, maybe we should have a no trillionaires tax. And people will be like, oh, my God, you're against the free market. You're like a dictator or something. It's funny how we all accept the logic like a minimum wage is a reasonable thing, but nobody says there should be a maximum net worth. But I think that's a perfectly reasonable position. Effectively, 100% tax on net worth, wealth over a certain line, maybe a billion dollars. So you can max out at a billion dollars net worth. Oh, but they're not going to be okay. How can you survive on a billion dollars in net worth? (laughs) When you have extreme wealth, by its very nature, that corrupts democratic governments. Because they're so wealthy, they could just buy whoever and whatever they want to buy, government agencies, individual politicians, specific legislation, loopholes. They rig the rules. This is obvious. So that is corrupting by its very nature to have extreme income and wealth inequality. So that has, we, we have to do something about that. I mean, we have, some people have over $100 billion, and 80% of the country is living paycheck to paycheck. That exists simultaneously. Half of workers in this country make $30,000 a year or less. Minimum wage workers, millions of them, can't afford to put a roof over their head. And we're all just going to sit back and watch these billionaire douchebags do joyrides to the edge of space and then come back and get sucked off by the media for it? What the fuck happened to our priorities? Now, I'm not against, you know, space travel. When NASA was doing the research and NASA was involved in it, we ended up getting a lot of technology that led to breakthroughs, like the Internet, for example. So I'm in favor of, you know, NASA and science and doing that, but I'm not in favor of billionaires commercializing it and doing it for their own purposes, and they take over what used to be the commons. I'm not okay with that. I think the system's completely out of whack. I think you need to tax these people steeply and need to redistribute, and everybody should have a fair shot in life. You should have universal health care and universal education and a UBI and universal child care and things that other developed countries have decided, well, this is obvious. Of course we should handle this stuff. This report is out of this world, and it's disgusting, and it should piss you off, man. Again, if you have a system where people are doing everything they're supposed to do, 
and they still can't afford to even put a roof over their head, maybe the problem isn't with the individual. Maybe the problem is the system. All right, let's move on. Dr. Fauci and Rand Paul. Dr. Fauci and Rand Paul exploded in a really heated clash with each other. Let's watch and then I'll break it down. Dr. Fauci, knowing that it is a crime to lie to Congress, do you wish to retract your statement of May 11th where you claimed that the NIH never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan? Senator Paul, I have never lied before the Congress, and I do not retract that statement. This paper that you are referring to was judged by qualified staff up and down the chain as not being gain-of-function. What, what, let me finish. Take an animal virus and you increase the transmissibility to humans. Right. You're saying that's not gain of function. Yeah, that is correct. And, and Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about, quite frankly. And I want to say that officially. You do not know what you are talking about. Let's okay, you get NIH, one person straight from the NIH definition of gain of function. This is your definition that you guys wrote. It says that scientific research that increases the transmissibility among mammals is gain of function. They took animal viruses that only occur in animals and they increased their transmissibility to humans. How you can say that is not gain of function? It is not. It's a dance and you're dancing around this because you're trying to obscure responsibility for four million people dying around the world okay. from a pandemic. And, and let's, let's send Dr. Fauci. I have to, well, now you're getting into something. If the point that you are making is that the, the, the grant that was funded as a sub-award from EcoHealth to Wuhan created SARS-CoV-2. That's where you are getting. Let me finish. We don't know. We don't Wait know a minute. It didn't I come from the lab, but all the evidence is pointing that it came from the lab, you, and there will be responsibility for those who funded the lab, including yourself. I totally This committee resent, will allow the witness to respond. I totally resent the lie that you are now propagating, Senator. Because if you look at the viruses that were used in the experiments that were given in the annual reports that were published in the literature, it is molecularly impossible. No one's saying those it, viruses it is, caused it. It no is molecularly those virus caused the pandemic. What we're alleging is that gain-of-function research was going on in that lab and NIH funded it. That is not get away from it. It meets your definition, and you are obfuscating the truth. I am not obfuscating the truth. You are the one. Time expired, but I will allow the witness to. Let me just finish. I want everyone to understand that if you look at those viruses, and that's judged by qualified virologists and evolutionary biologists, those viruses are molecularly impossible no one's to result they are. No in SARS-CoV-2. We're saying they are gain-of-function viruses because they were They're animal not. viruses that became more transmissible in human, and you funded it. And you did the truth. And you implying. Paul, your time has expired, and I will allow witnesses right. who come before this committee to respond. And, and you are implying that what we did was responsible for the deaths of individual I totally resent and that. Have, and if anybody and is lying here, Senator, it is you. 
damn, son, that got heated. Okay, so um, there's a lot to break down here. And so I had to do a little digging of my own because they both seemed really, like, passionate and certain of their positions, and they both seem like they really believe what they're saying. Like, it doesn't appear to me like Rand Paul thinks that Rand Paul is lying and Fauci thinks that Fauci is lying, but Fauci thinks Rand Paul is lying and Rand Paul thinks Fauci is lying. So um, let's get to the the first question is gain-of-function research. What is gain-of-function research? Well, it's defined as uh, medical research that alters an organism or disease in a way that increases pathogenesis transmissibility, or host range. This research is intended to reveal targets to better predict emerging infectious diseases and to develop vaccines and therapeutics. So in other words, you take a virus and you play with it in the lab to make it more deadly and more dangerous and more likely to be spread to humans. So, I mean, that seems super duper dangerous at face value, but their argument is, hey, the reason why we do this is because we want to be able to come up with vaccines and therapeutics that can handle this if it ever naturally happens. That's sort of the argument. Now, then there's a larger philosophical question. Well, hold on. By playing God and by doing this, aren't you just more likely to manifest, uh, you know, these, these viruses into reality? Whereas if you didn't do it, most of these viruses would never come into existence. So, like, maybe playing God is actually counterproductive here. I'm not going to get into that. That's a separate, more, you know, philosophical question and the question as to whether or not any of this research should be done. Anyway, I digress from that. But is it true that the United States gave grants to the, that Wuhan lab where they studied this virus and other viruses? The answer to that is yes. Yes, the United States was involved, at least in part, in funding that lab where a lot of this research was going on. Now, so on that point, on the gain-of-function point, yeah, I mean, Fauci is trying to sort of wiggle out or or go around the definition of of gain-of-function to take away any and all responsibility and accountability from not just himself but the U.S. government. So he's trying to, like, play semantics here that, well, technically it wasn't gain-of-function in order to get around the responsibility. So on that point, I think Rand Paul is correct. Another hilarious uh point here. Rand Paul said manimals in there. You could tell that they were both like sort of flustered when they started yelling, so he just sort of trips over his words and he's like, just manimals. Manimals. Anyway, sounds like the name of a really terrible sci-fi movie about an animal, part animal, part man that starts killing people. Anyway, uh, so now here's where Fauci's actually right, though, or likely right. Uh, You know, I talked to, to Crystal a little bit about this and she also was really interested in this and was reading about it. And they've covered the, you know, the lab leak theory extensively over on her show. And apparently the U.S. government grant that was given to Wuhan, the particular, the U.S. money had nothing to do with COVID-19. So, yes, the U.S. helped fund that Wuhan lab, at least in part, uh, but the particular things that our money, U.S. taxpayer money, went towards in the Wuhan lab was not COVID-19, which is why Fauci says, hey, the experts who looked at this said it's molecularly impossible for basically the stuff that we funded to become COVID-19. And so Fauci's point is, you're implying that, like, myself or the U.S. government is, like, 
directly responsible for COVID-19, and we're not. Yes, we helped fund the lab. Yes, we did some research at the lab, but it wasn't the research that maybe, maybe not led to COVID-19. So that's my understanding of the situation to this point. So in other words, Rand Paul is right on a, on a certain point about gain of function, but he is implying that the U.S. is sort of responsible for the COVID-19 pandemic, and Fauci is, you know, trying to weasel out of the, of the gain of function definition, but Fauci is actually correct that the U.S. did not fund the particular research that maybe led to the COVID-19 pandemic. So ultimately, they're both like half right and half complete bullshitters to serve their own narrative here. Now, the final point I want to make is this. Look, we still don't know which is more, which is correct. We don't know if there's more natural origins that are accurate, you know, like the wet market story or some other sort of natural origin. Uh, We don't know for sure. Um, But that cuts in both directions. Like people who out of hand dismiss the idea that it came from, from the lab are just wrong. I mean, one of the things they studied at this lab are bat coronaviruses. And so if, a a bat coronavirus starts spreading in the area where the bat coronavirus lab is, don't gaslight us and make it seem like it's insane that, you know, that would happen. Of course it's possible. It's not likely. Myself, based on everything I've read, and again, I'm not an expert. I'll caution everybody up front. My reading of the situation is that I'm like 65% sure it came from the lab. Now, let's be clear. That does not mean that China released it on purpose as a bioweapon. In fact, 100% sure they didn't do that because it also hurt them and it also affected them. And, you know, 4 million people around the world died and and over 600,000 Americans died. And this was definitely not on purpose. This is why they tried to cover it up at the beginning and then, then eventually it got out anyway and they couldn't cover it up and everybody's pointing the finger at everybody else. So... Get that out of your head, because that's the other thing. People feel like if you bring up, hey, maybe it came from the lab, that you're doing the new Cold War. Now, there are some people who say it came from the lab who want to do a new Cold War with China. I do not agree with those people. I don't want to do a new Cold War with China. But I also want to discuss the facts of how this came about so we can prevent it from happening again. And maybe the answer is ultimately no more gain-of-function research. You know, but again, I don't know. I'm 65% on the side of it came from the lab. There's still a chance it came from natural origins. Um, really it was the former head of either the FDA or the CDC when he went on CNN and explained why he thinks it came from the lab. He's the guy who more convinced me in that direction. Um, but honestly, I think in this debate and in this conversation, everybody's full of shit. First of all, everybody's talking with certainty when nobody fucking knows. You know what I mean? Like everybody who I've seen talk about this is either 100% certain it came from the lab or 100% certain it came from the wet market. They're 100% certain Dr. Fauci is correct about absolutely everything, even though he's a track record of getting shit dead wrong. I mean, he's the guy who said, you know, don't wear masks early on, and masks don't work. Meanwhile, he admitted later on he was saying it just because he wanted masks for the frontline workers. So you lied. So you lied. There are a number of things that they got wrong, okay? So Fauci's not 100% right about everything. Rand Paul and the right-wing narrative about, you know, the lab and it's sinister, that's not 100% right. They're not 100% right about everything. Uh, what we need to try to do, for the love of God, stop with the, the partisan tribalist mind virus, no pun intended, silliness where you want to take a side, you know, try to look at everything as objectively as you possibly can. And we're not all going to be right about everything, you know, but you should at least don't give up the search for what's actually true. So again, when I look at this back and forth, based on everything I've read, 
it strikes me that Fauci's being a weasel on the gain-of-function definition to try to say no culpability for the U.S. or for myself. Um, so Rand Paul's right on that point. But Rand is trying to imply that, like, the U.S. is sort of directly responsible for COVID when Fauci's point is, no, the grants we gave did not fund the particular, you know, research that maybe led to the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's what I think of the conversation. I, I, I will not be even a tiny bit surprised if basically everybody disagrees with me on this, because I know, listen, things are very partisan, very tribal, very heated, very passionate. And, you know, sometimes on some issues, I think nuance doesn't sell at all, and people are actively hostile to nuance. Having said all that, that's my, that's as objective as I could be in breaking down the situation, and it is what it is, and um, I expect to see a lot more of this moving forward, where this isn't going to resolve itself, and these people aren't going to, you know, continue to try to fact-find until we get the real truth of the situation. You're going to have the Fauci acolytes, acolytes and the partisan Democrats who will never say it may have come from a lab, and you'll have the people who think it comes from a lab who also happen to believe that, you know, it's sinister and we should do a new Cold War with China over it. Toxic political discourse, that's what we have in this country for sure. Okay, next. Jeff Bezos uh, decided to take a joyride to the edge of space. This is right after Richard Branson did that. If I'm not mistaken, I think Elon Musk at some point will do the same thing or something similar. It's kind of hilarious because uh, the rocket that he took looked like a dick. Uh, And it reminded everybody of the Austin Powers thing where they ride a dick rocket into space. And now it happened in real life. Hilarious. So the media was sort of losing it over this. They were, they were creaming themselves over this, which is amazing because, as Dave Weigel pointed out, if you go talk to people in real life, nobody gave a fuck. Like, I, I hadn't talked to a single person who was like, the Jeff Bezos thing going to space, yes, he didn't go to space, he went to the fucking edge of space just like Richard Branson did seven and a half seconds ago. Who gives a fuck? Who cares? Nobody in real life cared about this, but... Corporate media was just out of their minds over this. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. I mean, I guess it only makes sense in the context of elitism. These people who are in mainstream media really believe that billionaires are like billionaires simply because they're super intelligent and they're geniuses and they're, you know, always working on groundbreaking stuff or whatever. And so there's this weird religious cult of billionaire worship, and that might have something to do with it, that all, you know, all these people in mainstream media go to elite schools and are taught that we live in a meritocracy, and then here we are, the, one of the leaders of the meritocracy is you know, doing amazing new things. So maybe that has something to do with it. But a couple things. First of all, Jeff Bezos, after he got back, wearing a cowboy hat, I have no idea why, I've never seen him wear a cowboy hat before, okay, and he's do, given an interview, and he says something that pissed everybody off. And when I say everybody, I don't mean the media. They're still sucking off Bezos. Everybody else. Um, You're going to see what he says here. And then we'll 
come back and talk about it. But you're also going to see in this clip, some of, I, this is just the worst example. I could have picked any of a number of things. This is the worst example of the media fawning cringe fest and some of the arguments that they use to justify why this is so important and why this is so amazing. You're not going to believe this. Take a look. And then I also want to thank uh, every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer because you guys paid for all this. So seriously, for every Amazon customer out there and every Amazon employee, thank you from the bottom of my heart very much. This country is such a future of science and space and inspiring young people. Inspiring kids. Or, or, or surely, Nora, Nora, I want to... I'm sorry, go ahead, Nora, Nora and Charlie, I wanted to pick up on what Nora said about the millionaire story rights because people say this, and not to be Debbie Downer, but they say there are so many problems down here on earth that we should be addressing, that they should be addressing. We're spending all of this money in space to go to space and to what end? I think you've articulated it very well, but I wish you could put a button on it about why this generally matters. Yeah, not to make light of this, and I will, people will criticize what I'm about to say. Um, the young man sitting there, excited as he was, that's one less black kid on a corner somewhere um, getting ready to use a weapon. Uh, it is really, really, really important for us to inspire young people. We have to inform them. I don't know who that last person is. I don't want to know who that last person is. But that was one of the worst points I've ever heard in my life. So there's a black kid watching the rocket take off and land, and this person says, the reason why this is important is because now that black kid is going to think about this moving forward instead of doing what black kids usually do, which is commit crimes and shoot people and go sell drugs on the corner or something. Are you out of your mind? Why was the default assumption that a random black kid is definitely going to end up being a criminal? You want to talk about a bigoted assumption. What percentage of young black kids end up becoming criminals? He makes it seem like it's 80% or something absurd. What are you saying? Well, now you gave this kid something to care about. Was it not possible to care about anything else? Was it not possible to care about business or health care or art? Or was, why is the assumption, well, obviously... Kid was going to be a criminal. Look at him. But now, now he's going to think nonstop about going to space, which is something that probably 99.9% .9 of people who want to do it will never be able to do. What is wrong with the media? They really are in their own elitist bubble. Who does this represent? Who watches this and nods in agreement? Yeah, yeah. And by the way, even if you buy that horrendous logic, this used to be something that we did for the commons. It was the public. It was NASA. It was an American project. Now it's some billionaire douchebag. Which leads me to the first comment where he says, hey, thank you to every Amazon customer and every Amazon employee because you guys paid for it. You thought this was going to be an endearing thing to say? Yeah, I'm sure that every single worker who had to piss in a jar or shit in a bag or fainted in the factory because it was too fucking hot. I'm sure now they think, well, this was all worth it because my asshole boss. 
made it to the edge of space for three and a half seconds. Why, why does anybody, I don't, I don't, I simply don't understand why this is a big deal to anybody, anybody. NASA, you know, we were, we went to the moon. And now somehow getting to the edge of space is like a big deal. Why is that a big deal? Oh, because it was done by a billionaire and maybe this will lead to commercialization of the, why don't we spend the money? I, I think the criticism is 100% correct. Take that money and use it here for good. Jeff Bezos has enough money to eliminate world hunger. He can eliminate homelessness overnight in the U.S. like that. Why are we not? And forget him doing it. Tax the motherfucker and redistribute. He's got over $100 billion in net worth. Are you kidding? There should definitely be a wealth tax, and you should definitely take that money and eliminate student loan debt, you know, uh, give everybody health care, give everybody free college. There's a million things you could do. Not all with just uh, Bezos' money, but if you tax the wealthy, tax billionaires, tax and redistribute. I, these people don't understand what it's like in the real world for real people. They don't get it. They do not get it. We're going to cover a story later. Medical debt nearly doubled over the past three or four years. Doubled! And that's just the debt that went into collections. That doesn't even include the debt that's yet to go into collections. It was probably at least double that. I don't know how you get through to these people. They're elitist. They're in their own bubble. They don't understand the pain that's out there. And they're jovial over this bullshit. Listen again, I'm not against space travel. When you look at what happened with NASA, and you look at the government research that goes into the problem solving for something like space travel, you get a lot of technology that can have practical use. So I'm not against it. But it should be done as an American project. And also it should be funded by taxing these motherfuckers who are now taking joy rides on their own. None of his workers should be allowed to should have to piss in jars and shit in bags and faint in the factory. We need new rules and regulations around that. Got to have better climate control in these various factories, in these warehouses, I should say. Got to have stricter overtime rules and hours, and, and you should have near universal unionization so workers actually have a fighting chance to live a decent life. It's not a coincidence that back when we had higher unionization rates in the U.S., we had a thriving middle class and working class and other developed countries that have near-universal unionization have thriving middle classes and working classes. So that's what we have to do. And the media is not addressing any of these serious things. And what they're doing is giving a billionaire in a cowboy hat a smooth hand job over some lame bullshit. It's astonishing. It really is. All these fucking problems. And now we got these jackasses going to the edge of space. I mean, they will try, you'll have a billionaire try harder to colonize Mars than you'll have governments on this planet fight climate change. Think about how mental that is. Think about it. In New York, it's been hazy for the past week and a half. You want to know why? Because smoke from the wildfires out west has blanketed the northeast. We haven't seen the sun in the northeast in over a week. And this asshole is going to the edge of space. And 
it's more likely a billionaire tries to colonize Mars than the government does anything sufficient to fight back against climate change or even get us off of fossil fuels, move to all electric vehicles, have solar power more widespread or whatever. Oh, man. Again, listen, I, from a selfish perspective, from a greedy perspective, I should not be complaining because the fact that these guys are this bad and this out of touch leaves a lane wide open for YouTube assholes like myself to come out here and say basic common sense things and attract an audience. But you know what? I'd rather have a much smaller audience and much less support for this show if it meant that mainstream media did their job because if they did their job, the country would be in a much better position. Okay, next. So Ben and Jerry decided you know what, we're not going to sell ice cream anymore in the occupied Palestinian territory. Um, this actually blew up on Twitter. Listen, I'm surprised they actually at any point sold ice cream in the occupied Palestinian territory because these Ben and Jerry are like big-time Bernie supporters, and I just would have assumed that they didn't really sell it there, but apparently they were selling it there. Now they're saying, we're not going to do it anymore. We're against that. And apparently I think their whole distributor in Israel severed ties with them over that or wants to sever ties with them over that. So now they're working on, all right, we're going to find somebody new to, you know, sell to Israel in the territory that's actually Israel. And it's only, they only want to stop selling it in the occupied Palestinian territory. So in other words, the areas that it is very clearly against international law for Israel to be occupying that land, that's where they want to stop selling it. So listen, this is a version of BDS, Boycotts, Divestment, and Sanctions. Uh, you know, one of the versions of BDS says, let's only, um, let's only boycott the Ill- illegally occupied territories. Um, and so this is what they're doing here. Now, I remember covering a story from like five years ago where it was interesting. It was something like over 30% of companies were doing that in Israel, or there was like a 30% um, decrease of people living in the occupied territories because there were so many businesses that were doing BDS. So understand something. I don't remember the specifics of it, but there was some fact that was astonishing in the sense that it showed this approach works. This approach actually makes it so that it makes it harder for Israel to continue to occupy the land Because if all of polite society says, go fuck yourself, you shouldn't be on that land, then they can't really get the materials they need. They can't really get the food they need or the medicine they need in the area. And they're almost, their hand is forced from an economic perspective. You got to get out. And listen, it's not dissimilar from what happened in apartheid South Africa. That's, you know, where the strategy comes from. So um, Ben and Jerry's did that. Props to them on that. Well, guess what? In reaction to that, oh boy, are hose mad. So there were, the funniest thing I saw was somebody, you know, made a a fake Ben and Jerry's um, ice cream container that said like anti-Semitic on it. And it had the, you know, the terribly offensive Jewish stereotype cartoon of the greedy person rubbing their hands together with the big hook nose, like the stereotypical anti-Semitic thing. They put that picture on it and called the ice cream like anti-Semitic pecan or something. And (laughs) 
and they were tweeting about it. There were a number of people who bought like three or four different, you know, uh, Ben and Jerry's ice creams, took a couple spoons out of it, and then threw it out, and then tweeted about it. I'm so angry at you. How could you? How dare you? But the best one, Netanyahu said something against it, of course. And then you had this idiot who's like the the uh, foreign relations minister or some, something to that effect in Israel, Yair Lapid, Lapid. I don't even know how to say his name. I don't care. He's a douchebag. He says, Ben and Jerry's decision represents shameful surrender to anti-Semitism, to BDS, and to all that is wrong with the anti-Israel and anti-Jewish discourse. We will not be silent. Yeah, dude, you're such a victim, of course. Over 30 states in the United States have passed anti-BDS legislation in recent years. I plan on asking each of them to enforce these laws against Ben and Jerry's. They will not treat the state of Israel like this without a response. So a couple things there. I can't, there's nothing that annoys me more than an oppressor who whines and bitches and moans like they're the victim. Shut the fuck up. You are not a victim. You are not a victim. You know who a victim is? Somebody who just had their home literally bulldozed because Israel is trying to destroy the village in order to build a fucking new highway for settlers, who, by the way, are like Jewish supremacists and who have an apartheid system. Okay? Spare me. Spare me. Oh, I'm such a victim! One type of ice cream isn't being sold in our illegally stolen area. <laughs> Shut up. Shut up. God, who looks at this and is like, good point, bro. You nailed it. I feel so bad. It's such an outrage that they're, you're not going to be able to buy the ice cream that you want in the illegally occupied territory. Imagine caring more about that than people whose lives have been absolutely ruined and whose land has been stolen and it continues to happen. Imagine caring more about that than the fact that Israel just destroyed, bombed in a, a building that had the media in it in Gaza. And you're bitching and, and moaning about ice cream. Uh, out of this world, out of this world. But the other thing is, look at how brazen it is. Over 30 states have anti-BDS legislation. Hey, all those 30 states should criminally punish Ben and Jerry's. Okay, we have this thing in this country called the First Amendment and free speech. And you know what? There have been, I believe it's four courts in the U.S. who've heard cases on this anti-BDS legislation and these anti-BDS rules. Every single time the BDS laws have been struck down because we have the First Amendment and we have free speech. This guy wants to make it so if you're an American citizen, you're allowed to criticize the American government as vituperatively as you want. But if you criticize Israel and the Israeli government, that's not allowed. Punish them. Lock them up. Put them in jail. Or whatever. Ban them from it. I don't even know what he's asking for. What do you want? You think Ben & Jerry's has, like, government contracts where they get government money? I don't think they do. Are you saying if they get those contracts, cut off that money? Is that what you're saying? Because even that would be unconstitutional. But put that aside, it sounds to me like he's going further than that. What do you want done? You, he doesn't care. He wants something criminal, some punishment for what he believes is a criminal action. The criminal action saying, I disagree with your illegal occupation, so I'm not going to sell ice cream in the occupied territory. Do you want to force them to sell ice cream in the occupied territory? Is that what you want to do? You want to force them to sell ice cream. Little bitches. Me, wine moan bitch. I'm so oppressed. I can't buy the ice cream. The people who own the ice cream company give a shit about Palestinians. Me. They support human rights. I'm against human rights. Me. Shut the fuck up. God, they're the worst. 
There, you, you notice this. It's not just the Israeli government, to be fair. There's a couple that are like this. Um, Turkey and India are pretty bad, too. You can have the most mild, tepid criticism of the Turkish government or, or the Indian government, and the, the overreaction you get back is the most insane shit you've ever seen where they think you basically committed genocide because you said, hey, maybe you shouldn't do that thing that's brazenly authoritarian and destructive and against human rights. How could you? How could you? Anti-Semite. I love that, too, by the way. It, like, any criticism of the Israeli government is immediately called anti-Semitism 100% of the time. It could be the most nuanced thing ever. Honestly, it reminds me a lot of when people criticize the Iraq war, conservatives always said about liberals on the left, you're just anti-American. You just hate America. You just hate America. You're like a bigot against America. That, that's intellectually satisfying to you, that answer? It can't be because maybe the war is illegal and maybe we're not under attack by this country. Maybe whatever. It, they go right to attack your character, attack your, you as a person, attack your motivations and your intentions, say it stems from xenophobia or bigotry or racism or whatever. Utterly ridiculous. So anyway, credit to uh, Ben and Jerry's. I, you want to know why they're overreacting? Here's the real point. They're overreacting because they don't want this to catch on. Like I said, there's already, I think it was 30% of businesses or something like that pulled out of the occupied territory, and this was going back four or five years or whatever it was. Um, but... Imagine if you get 80%, 90% of businesses that are like, we're, we're done. We're not doing it there. Now, again, he's, they're not saying all of Israel. If you go, you know, the lines that were drawn in 1947, 1948, you know, totally fair game to do business there. It's, you know, there's a difference between all of Israel and the illegally occupied territories that everybody agrees are illegally occupied territories. There's a difference. So, but that nuance is irrelevant to them. They're going to call it anti-Semitism. They're going to say it's bigoted and xenophobic. And they're going to flip out because they feel like this is an existential threat to them because if 80 or 90% of the businesses pull out, then it is an existential threat, at least to the illegally occupied territories. But what I say to that is, good. That's the point. We want you out of there. You should be out of there. The entire international community, except the U.S. and you guys, says you should be out of there. Take your settler colonial bullshit and your anti-human rights garbage and shove it. Okay. All right, let me take a quick break. When we come back, Fox News hosts clash on vaccines. You do not want to miss this, and you do not want to miss Candace Owens accidentally being based. Stay right there.
right, y'all. Welcome to the jungle. We are back. All right, let's keep it going. Still got a lot of phenomenal stories to get to. Talk about these Fox hosts. The Fox hosts on Fox and Friends got into a fight. Steve Ducey and Brian Kilmeade. This is over the issue of vaccines, but also the issue of, uh, you know, the role of government. Watch. vaccination that's your choice and if you did like i did and and they did and maybe you did then you should not wear a mask and if you did if you want to go cliff diving this weekend you don't have to check with me it seems a little dangerous but i'm not going to judge you and if you go ahead and put yourself in danger if you feel as though this is not something for you don't do it but don't affect my life 99 percent of the people who are dying from covid are unvaccinated that is their their choice they, they don't want to die. Uh, so they are, the administration and the government is saying we need the mask mandate to protect the unvaccinated. That, that well, is not, oh, that's not their job. It's not their job to protect anybody. Well, that's amazing. It's not their job to protect anybody, says Brian Kilmeade about the government. I don't think he has the same opinion if there's, say, a terrorist attack that happens under a Democratic president not the government's job to protect anybody. It's your free choice. Use your personal responsibility if you're going to get attacked by al-Qaeda or something. Whatever. It's not, your, it's not the government's job to protect people. Now, understand, it's a complex situation, right? Like, you do have to balance freedom and liberty with safety and security. There is, like, sort of a balancing act. So just to give an example, seatbelts. Like, are, are seatbelts seat belts being mandatory? Is that the government telling you you have to do some shit? Yes. It's the government telling you you have to do this. Click. So, now you can be all hyperbolic about that and say, oh, my God, my liberty is, is you know, being taken away by this. But that's clearly an overreaction, and you're being a little silly. And I would file that more under the category of, like, basic regulation. And if, if doing something as simple as this, tens of thousands of lives a year, to, I don't know the actual number to be fair, so I, maybe it's less than that, maybe it's more than that. I genuinely don't know. But if that does save thousands of lives a year, then I think it's a great law. I think it's a great invention. Thank you, Ralph Nader. I think it's a great law. I don't know if Ralph, Ralph Nader didn't invent it. I think he's the one who did the lawsuits that eventually led to the law being passed. I, again, I don't remember the specifics of this, but... Um, if that's all it takes, then in the, in the conversation and the debate between where do we allow complete freedom and liberty and where do we provide for safety and security, I think you struck a great balance there where you're providing for safety and security you know, while also giving people liberty and freedom. Like It's not taking away too much of your freedom to spend literally a second clicking in the seatbelt. Now, on the flip side, if they said, we're going to ban all cars because people die in cars, then I say you're leaning way too much on the side of safety and security and not nearly enough on the side of freedom and liberty. So there is a balancing act. I don't want it you know, to be misconstrued. It, the world is a complex place, and sometimes you know, there are messy solutions to stuff. 
But for him to say it's not the government's job at all to protect people, at all. So why do we have, you know, clean air and clean water rules? Why do we have regulations around that? Why do we have building codes? Why do we have a military that's supposed to go after al-Qaeda? Now, by the way, everybody knows we're more of an empire, and oftentimes we're the baddies, but I digress from that point. Nominally speaking, you do want to protect from, like, al-Qaeda. Why do we have police officers to protect people, you know, in certain situations, and to protect people's rights? So if the conversation is, Get a, get a vaccine or don't get a vaccine if you want, but to have, like, a mask mandate if you're not vaccinated, is that, like, a ridiculous, you know, thing that's really overly punitive and it takes away your freedom and your liberty? I don't think so. I think in a pandemic, it's totally within the purview of government to say, hey, we're going to do a universal mask mandate or we're going to do a mask mandate among the unvaccinated or we're going to do it at the state level or the local level or even the federal level. You know, I actually think... If we had copied Japan early on, it took a much longer time for Japan to get hit hard by COVID because they basically had universal masks. And so if we had universal masks in this country earlier on, I think we would have been better off. I don't think that crosses the line into too draconian and too much of a crackdown on freedom and liberty. Um, I just think that's, again, more of an intelligent basic safety regulation. So it's just a hilarious quote. It's not the government's job to protect us. One of the things it's supposed to do is protect us, for sure. And, in fact, I think, again, if you change the context, kill me would flip on that opinion in a second. If there was a terrorist attack under a Democratic president, he'd be like, the government's only job is to protect us, and they failed. They failed. Um, so, uh, look, Ducey appears to be way more pro-vaccine than Kilmeade, and I respect that. But notice, Kilmeade did say, even though he's arguing for a different position, he did say, I was vaccinated. I need you to understand something. Everybody who's selling snake oil to you about vaccines, almost all of them, over 90% of them, are vaccinated. I just need you to understand that because these people are not walking the walk and talking the talk. These people are hypocrites. They're selling you a, a vision and a worldview that actually doesn't coincide with what theirs really is. And I'll put it this way. There's a reason why Joe Biden was vaccinated and there's a reason why Donald Trump was vaccinated. Now, I got a million problems with big pharma, but that doesn't mean antibiotics don't work, and that doesn't mean that vaccines don't work. If you don't think vaccines work, what the fuck happened to polio, and what the fuck happened to smallpox? So, the shit works. The shit works. And if anything, my issue with the media is that they're too much on the side of, they're, they don't paint an accurate picture, and they actually feed um, you know, vaccine hesitancy. And we talked about this in a previous segment where they said the, the, uh, the Pfizer vaccine is only 64% effective against the new Delta variant. Then you read the specifics, and actually it's 94% effective against severe illness and hospitalization. That's the only number that matters, guys. Now, technically, is it less effective? Yes, but you know what it was before that? 97%. So it's 97% effective against the original COVID variant, and now it's 94% effective against the Delta variant, and there were scaremongering headlines, like now it's only 64% effective. Nonsense. If you get COVID, if you've had the Pfizer vaccine and you get COVID and you have the sniffles, they count that against the vaccine. They say it didn't work. What do you mean it didn't work? The person who had the sniffles may have been hospitalized previously or may have had a moderate case of the illness. What are you talking about? Of course it worked. Of course it fucking worked. So I think the media is doing actually a terrible job talking about this stuff. It's really interesting to see that uh, 
Ducey is like the more reasonable one because Ducey is like 99% of the people who are dying are unvaccinated. And Kilby's like, I don't really want the government to protect me. That's a mask mandates are tyranny. Mask mandates in a pandemic are tyranny. All right, well, there you have it. Um, never thought I'd be clearly taking a side in a fight among Fox News morons, but Team Ducey. Team Ducey over Team Douchey. Okay, next. Candace Owens um, really stepped in it here. She accidentally admitted that Medicare for all, single-payer universal health care, is awesome. So she tweeted this, and it went rather viral. The COVID vaccine saves lives, which is why the government is making it free. Okay, so explain to me why insulin and asthma inhalers cost so much money. If the vaccines are really about the government trying to save your life, why do life-saving medicines cost so much? Exactly. You're right there. You're right there. You're right on the edge. One more millimeter. One more millimeter. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Why does it cost so much money? Answer. Capitalism. The profit motive. People want to get wealthy off of other people's health situation. That's what it is. So there's price gouging that goes on, Candace. That's the problem. You have, you know, uh, drugs in this country cost like double or more what they cost in other developed countries because we're being price gouged by Big Pharma, who's effectively bought our government and our government lets them get away with it. That's a problem, isn't it? Expensive drugs are a problem, right? Health insurance companies that you pay a tremendous amount of money to and then when you need them the most, abandon you and say, that's not covered, I reject your claim, that's a problem, right? So what, you're right there, Candace. you're right there. Now, look, the reason why the COVID vaccine effectively is free, by the way, it's the only little taste of socialized medicine that we're getting in this country. Obviously, we have, we have Medicare, which is socialized medicine. We have the VA, but for the entire population, the tiny little taste of socialism that we got here uh, is because it was a pandemic and if we didn't act and we didn't get a vaccine and we didn't get it soon, we would have way more than the 600,000 Americans that already died from it. So it was such an overwhelming, pressing health emergency and pandemic that our usual, our our government, which is usually, you know, anti-efforts like this, they realized there's no way around it because if we, if we don't have it so that it's basically free, not nearly enough people are going to get it. And so if you make it free, and even with it free now, what are we at? 60% of the population or something like that is vaccinated and it needs to be way more than that to hit herd immunity. So even with it free, we're struggling to hit herd immunity. But if it wasn't free, we'd probably have half of what we have now vaccinated. Maybe have 30% of people vaccinated or something like that. So yes, the real takeaway is this was awesome. Like, this is one of the very few things I will give Trump credit for. You know, he did sort of make it so that they did it faster than they normally would and really put the pressure on them to speed it up. And so I give credit to the Trump administration for Operation Warp Speed, and I give credit to the Biden administration for seeing it through and, you know, making the distribution better and more efficient when he came into office. 
But yes, this is awesome. By the way, I've never had a better medical experience in my entire life than when I got the vaccine, ever, ever. All I did, I showed up at the, uh, I made an appointment. Well, actually, I didn't. It was either my mom or my sister or my aunt or somebody. They did it because I tried to get it right when I was allowed to get it in New York, so it was very busy, and everybody was trying to find a time for me. I, thankfully, I was able to get one, and um, I, it was at a CVS nearby. I go in there. I uh, just show my card, you know, my insurance card, which I think it's fucked up we even need to have insurance cards, but I show my insurance card, and uh, waited on a, a, a relatively short line given the circumstances, and I sat down, said hi to the pharmacist. I got the Johnson & Johnson shot, the bad boy vaccine, right in my arm, and we're done. I had to sit there for 10 or 15 minutes so they monitor you, make sure you don't have a bad reaction, and then you're gone. And that's it. I didn't pay a single dollar, not a single penny. And it was awesome. <laughs> and so I got to tell you, I was like, Gee, imagine everything medical was like this. It would be so much better. It would be so much smoother. And don't say we can't do it, because it would save us $5 trillion. Guys, it's more expensive when you have a number of rapacious for-profit price gougers trying to get in your wallet. So the health insurance companies are price gougers. Big Pharma are price gougers. I mean, even, even the care providers are price gougers. Like the hospitals themselves are price gougers. The doctors themselves price gougers. It's a scam on top of a scam within a scam. If you get rid of all the mafia middlemen, you end up paying less and ultimately getting better care, as we know from other developed countries. So, yes, Candace, you're right fucking there. You're right there. You're right there. What happened with the COVID vaccine should be the case with all of our medicine, with all of it. If you have cancer, you should get treatment, and that's it. As John Q says, that great Denzel Washington movie, here's the way it should work. Sick, help. Sick, help. That's it. We've made it so much more complicated than it has to be, and it's all because of capitalism. It's all because of the profit motive. It's all because some people want to get phenomenally wealthy off of other people's pain and their health situation. And it, I'm telling you, it is, it's a perverse incentive. That's what it is. If you have insurance companies who make more money the more they deny you care, that's a problem. That's a problem. You have pharma companies that can price gouge you and get away with it because they bought the government. That's a problem. Nationalize all of it. Nationalize all of it. And don't tell me we can't do it. I mean, the, the military is run by the government. And the military is gigantic. It, it's simply a matter of who funds it and who is calling the shots and what's the leadership like. You could set up a very efficient, intelligent, reasonable system done through nationalization. Just like you could have a, a, you know, a great business or a terrible business. You could have somebody who does a bad job running a, a national healthcare system or a great job. It's all about the leadership, the efficiency, how organized it is, how structured it is. Of course we need to do it. It's obvious we need to do it. Again, this isn't an open debate. This is a point I'm trying to impress upon everybody. It's not an open debate or discussion. Hey, is universal health care workable or good? Every other developed country has it, and they do better than us. So, yes, we rank 11th out of 11 with the Commonwealth Fund with their study when they look at the uh, healthcare systems around the world. Dead last. So don't tell me we can't do it. We know we can do it. We know it will save money. 
We know more people get covered and they'll get better care. We know you'll be able to go to whatever doctor you want to go to, whereas right now you can't because insurance companies will tell you that doctor's in network and that doctor's out of network. Candace, you're right fucking there. You're right there. Yes, make it all free. Her point is she's trying to say, like, no, the COVID vaccine doesn't save lives. And it's, you know, she's anti-vax now, hardcore anti-vax, which is just. So, by the way, if you're skeptical on the vaccine, I just want you to know this is one of your top spokespeople here. I just follow the evidence, follow the science, follow the data. I've told you guys a million times. I've covered the vaccine in detail on this show. When I, before I got it, I did a lot of research on it because I wanted to know what I was putting in my body. And it was unequivocal. Every, every outlet that had even a modicum of credibility was able to explain in detail how it's the right thing to do. And, you know, listen, polio, smallpox, vaccines have been phenomenally successful in the past, and just because we hate big pharma, rightfully so, because they're corrupt and they bought the government and all this stuff, doesn't mean antibiotics don't work, doesn't mean your doctor's a piece of shit, and doesn't mean vaccines don't work. So you could have that reality or Candace Owens. All right, next. All right, so... Um, Let's talk a little bit about this thing that happened with Ro Khanna the other day. Now, let me just say up front, everybody knows I like Ro Khanna. I think he's one of the best Congress people that we have. Um, I think his voting record is one of the best as well. Every now and then he does something that I really don't like, but the majority of the time he votes the way I would vote if I was there. So this isn't an attempt to besmirch anybody or cancel anybody or whatever. This is just to talk about what I think is an important issue, which is, free discourse, open dialogue, what's reasonable, what's not reasonable, and all that. So Ro Khanna did some sort of interview or conversation or discussion with, uh, with Bill Crystal, And so let me go ahead and show you what he said about that. Bill Crystal is one of the most thoughtful voices in defending liberalism and democratic institutions in our country. Learned a lot in our conversation about shaping also an inclusive narrative around American patriotism. So, I uh, saw that, and my response was, he's a war criminal. And I say that because he's a war criminal. He was one of the top people at the Project for a New American Century, which is a neocon think tank, which were effectively the architects of the Iraq War. I know who Bill Crystal is. You know who Bill Crystal is. He's got a long history. His, his main issue, what he's made his main issue is um, regime change and imperialism and spreading democracy around the world by sometimes overthrowing democratic countries. Iraq's not democratic, to be clear. But overthrowing democratic countries and putting into place um, U.S.-backed puppet dictators. That's who Bill Crystal is. Uh, now, the reason why all of a sudden he's allowed in these liberal circles is because he's also anti-Trump. What people don't understand is the reasons he doesn't like Trump. He doesn't like Trump because of the lack of a filter and the potty mouth and the inability to be polite and civil, the inability to put the veneer over the grossness of American empire. That's why he doesn't like Trump. He doesn't like Trump because every now and then Trump used to say, I'll protect Social Security, Medicare, and I won't outsource your jobs. Now, by the way, he did outsource your jobs, but he used to say these pseudo-populist things, and Bill Crystal was offended and appalled by that. 
and he's offended and appalled when Trump used to pretend like he was in favor of ending wars. That's why Bill Crystal didn't like Trump. It had nothing to do with, you know, real, intelligent, good reasons to hate Trump, like the fact that he was a servant of Wall Street. He destroyed the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, all of the things about Trump you should have an issue with are things that Bill Crystal actually liked about Trump. But there, since he's so critical against Trump, and now he's on liberal networks, all of a sudden he's allowed in these liberal circles. So I want to be clear about something. My issue is not at all that Ro Khanna decided to speak to Bill Crystal or have a conversation or discussion or a podcast with Bill Crystal. I'm of the opinion you should talk to whoever you want to talk to and don't talk to whoever you don't want to talk to. You do what you want. It's a free country. You do what you want, and I'll support your decision on that front. My issue is it is not factual and not accurate how he's being described. He's not a thoughtful voice in defending liberalism and democratic institutions. He is a person who absolutely obliterated a foreign country that did not attack us. He is partly responsible for the destruction of Iraq. A thought leader in this illegal and offensive war against a country that didn't attack us, which led to hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians being killed and torture happening. Even the management of the war post-overthrowing Saddam was incredibly destructive. They fired everybody who was a Ba'athist. Basically, the entire government was immediately let go, which led to increased tensions among the uh, Sunni and Shia in the region. Because Saddam was Sunni and Iraq is barely, but majority Shia. I think it's like 60% Shia. Saddam was Sunni, and they overthrew him. They got rid of all the Ba'athists, and then they brought in, you know, effectively a, a Shia leader. And led to increased sectarian tensions, and the U.S. is greatly responsible for that. So everything about this guy, he's not a protector of democratic institutions. He's the exact opposite. He's an imperialist, neoconservative thug. A thug. That's what he is. And so my issue is not that Ro Khanna talked to him. You're allowed to talk to him. My issue is you're describing him as a thoughtful voice in defending liberalism and democratic institutions. In other words, you are helping to whitewash his record and clean the Iraqi blood off his hands. And that, in my opinion, is unforgivable. And then, so, Bill Crystal uh, also tweeted, I'm back in the office after stimulating lunch with Ro Khanna. And see, he's tweeted about it, which is fine, but not with some on the left. I'm sure Roe can take the heat. As for me, I benefit, benefited from our talk and admired Roe's willingness to argue and occasionally gasp agree. Um, again, I can only speak for myself here. I'm not a spokesperson for the left. But my issue is not that Roe talked to you. He could talk, he talked to you every day for all I care. You know, he, he, you could do a podcast with him. You could hash out all your disagreements, whatever. My issue is the way you were described was factually inaccurate, and it helps to whitewash your horrendous record. Bill Crystal, we used to do segments on this show. Bill Crystal, I think, holds the world record for being wrong about shit. I, I, wish I, could, I wish I had the segment queued up right now, but I remember going through like a list of every prediction he made that was dead wrong, and it was hilarious because it was never-ending. He's wrong about everything. And Roe calls him a thoughtful voice in defending liberalism and democratic institutions. He's a complete idiot who failed up his entire life. His daddy was political, and obviously he's massively political. And his whole thing is like, shouldn't the U.S. run the world? So I just I don't agree with how he's being described. So I just want to be clear again, this has nothing to do with canceling anybody. Ro Khanna's voting record is his voting record, and there's most of the stuff there is 
correct and good, and he deserves credit for that. That's why I've done a thousand segments on Ro Connor where we give him credit. But this is a swing and a miss. And the final point I'll make is this, and this is really important. I hope everybody, you know, really takes – if you take anything away from this segment, it should be this. Let people – people can talk to whoever they want to talk to, can not talk to whoever they don't want to talk. That's all fine. That's all fine. But what you need to do is have the conversation or the discussion reflect the reality of the person's record or beliefs. So, in other words, and, and we run into this all the time with Crystal Kyle and friends, with how we do our podcast there. Most of the people who we talk to are just people who we're genuinely interested in, and they don't have too many concerning beliefs, and they don't have a, you know, a record of war crimes or whatever the fuck. That's the other thing. War crimes aren't just disagreements, and I hate when people portray it as such. But like, so for Crystal Kyle and friends, you know, most of the things are just smooth conversations because the people who we're talking to, it merits just a smooth conversation because we don't have colossal disagreements. They don't have some abysmal record. And so you can have a smooth conversation and it's all fine and dandy. Then there are some people who it's sort of a middle ground approach you have to take. So for example, when we had on Andrew Yang, yeah, we agreed with him where we agree with him. You know, like, for example, we think the media always treated him unfairly and smeared him because they did. And so we talked about that. But also, he said some horrendously atrocious things about Israel-Palestine. So what do we do? We brought it up, and we talked to him about it, and we pressed him on it. You want to know why? Because we don't agree with him on that, and we think he's way off base, egregiously off base, where it's morally reprehensible what his beliefs were. So we had to press him on that, and we did. And we didn't guess what? It was uncomfortable. But it's what we had to do. We had a responsibility to do it. And then other people, by the way, who you might want to engage with, have nothing but a a hideous record, who are wrong about virtually everything and have terrible things in their past and have a terrible political record. If you engage with those people, I would hope that virtually the entire conversation is sort of, you know, not amicable. You butt heads, you push back, you disagree strongly, you make clear that you think the person is wrong, you, you hash everything out, but you stick by your principles and your beliefs, and you explain where you think the person is horribly off base. So in other words, some interviews have to be standoffish, because it all depends on the person's beliefs and their record. Now, I haven't really had many discussions with people like that, who I think their beliefs are just atrocious. I haven't really had that many conversations with them. I'm not really as interested in talking to them because I know it's just all it is is going to be strife and disagreement and, and talking over each other's heads. But sometimes you have to have, you know, nothing but a standoffish like debate with somebody. It all depends on their record. Some people, it's the middle ground. Some of the stuff you're going to agree with them, it's going to be lovely and other things you're going to have to really hold them accountable. And then other people, it's the smooth conversation. Now, I wasn't in the room for Bill Crystal and Ro Khanna, so I don't know exactly how the conversation went. But my contention is, Bill Crystal is one of those people where it should be pretty much nothing but adversarial the whole time. Because he's wrong about 95% of stuff. That's how I would treat a conversation or a debate with Bill Crystal. 95% disagreement, holding him accountable the whole time, going over the things we disagree with. My issue is I think what Roe did is he put him in the 50-50 category. You know, it was like half complete agreement and then half, uh, you know, okay, I disagree with you on your war crimes, which is not strong enough, you know. But the half where he agreed, 
was terribly inaccurate, and that's my issue with it. The half where he agreed, you, are, you heard what he said, thoughtful leader on democratic institutions or whatever. It's like, no, he's not. No, he's not. So don't, because I saw what Rose's response was to this when the left was coming after him. It was like, oh, everybody's trying to cancel me. He said something like that to Glenn. Like, oh, I thought you weren't in favor of cancel culture. <laughs> and Glenn accurately responded, this has nothing to do with cancel culture. I'm not trying to kick anybody off social media here. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, deplatform you or censor you or anything. You can say whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. The issue here is his record is horrendous, and you're not accurately reflecting that. And so this goes across the board, guys. Never – I guess my point is it's, it's got to all be accurate. Don't ever overstate your agreements with people who you actually don't have agreements with or that many agreements with. Don't understate it. It's just got to all be accurate and reflect the reality of the situation, the reality of the person's political beliefs, and the reality of their uh, record. And really what you see now is people usually fall into one or two camps, which is treat everybody as adversarial or treat everybody as, like, completely agreeable and look for that 3% agreement and disregard the 97% terrible shit. So anyway, that's my breakdown of it. I hope Roe maybe learn something from this, but it is what it is. Okay, next. Ben Shapiro um, had on Neil deGrasse Tyson for his Sunday show, and they got into a really interesting debate about trans issues. is militating against the, the advent of science. One of those areas is, is the area of transgenderism. Uh, the, the argument that is typically made by gender theorists is that gender is entirely separate from sex. Uh, you, you've seen the argument made that it makes no difference on average if men are stronger than women are, and that if we were to allow transgender women to compete with non-transgender women, then this would somehow not disadvantage biological women. And this seems to me absolutely ascientific, that if we're actually going to have a discussion about gender and sex, that that should be based in data, which suggests that mammals are, in fact, binary in terms of their sex, unless you have intersex birth defects, typically, or genetic defects. I'm happy to opine on this. Um, this only matters because today we segregate most, nearly all sports by gender. Otherwise, why do we even give a shit? <laughs> what's, what someone identifies with. So this is, we live in a free country and with consenting adults and people free expression of who and what they are. Man, I don't love life with you. I mean, it doesn't matter what you That's okay. And, and so there's the, there's the, the, the matrix of, of, you know, what you are biologically, how you express yourself, who you choose as a sexual partner. If we actually live in a free country, as we tell ourselves, people's freedom to behave in any of those ways should not concern you at all, nor are they requiring that you behave that way, right? right. This is for their own freedoms, right. because we live in a free country. Now, what is unresolved here is, what do you do with sports? It's unresolved. And I follow that closely, and I don't see any, I don't see any meaningful solutions that come down off of that. Um, we know that hormones manifest differently in different people, and that's the whole thing with steroids. Steroids are hormones, right? And we rallied against steroids in professional sports, because it gives you an undue advantage. So, I, and I've tried to think of what the future of sports would be, 
in the world of a gender spectrum. And it may be, you don't specify whether it's a male or female sport. You just take measurements of what your hormonal balances are. And so you compete based on your hormonal. <laughs> this is fun, I, I don't know. I, I don't know where it's going to land. Yeah, but the WNBA won't be in business for very long well, if, if that's the case. It would just be, uh, you'd, have to, you'd have to find some way to compete people against each other if you still care that sports is an interesting activity. I guess the area where it does come up in, in a non-sports area. So you talk in your book about the education of children and teaching children about science. And right now, children are being taught about the quote-unquote gender spectrum, which is not scientifically based. That is a, that is a theory-based idea. No, wait, 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 hold on. People express themselves on a spectrum. So you learn that. That's, I, I don't that's, that, that, that's, that's a social, that's yeah, a social yeah, point, it's, not a scientific point. It's, it's, oh. Meaning we, we express ourselves well, hold on, hold on. In, based in different languages. Is that something you teach in science class, or is that something that you teach when you're teaching language? Um, so... Whether the fact that people want to express themselves on a spectrum, on a gender spectrum, whether that fact is something you want to put in a sociology class or in a science class, maybe that remains to be determined. But it is a real fact about real society. Well, of course, nobody's denying that people identify how they want to identify. So, so, so the question uh, is, what is the relationship of that to biology? Meaning that I, what, the argument is made that trans women are women, for example, and what that seems to me that trans women are identical to women. Now, people want to say trans women are not biological women. Obviously, that is the case. But people don't seem to want to say that, although that is obviously scientifically true. Trans women are not biological women. Biological women are biological women. But where are you going with this? What, 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 is your, what, is your, what are you trying to accomplish by asking yourself, is it science or is it not science? It's how it's people in society. But, but, but this, is, this is a perfect example of an area where suddenly it doesn't matter to say things that are just true. Like, why is it, why is it bad or wrong? I have another way to... to approach this. Um, I care what is objectively true in the world as a scientist. Uh, but let me not say even as a scientist. I just simply care what is objectively true. And science happens to be a pretty potent path to invoke, to find out what is true. And so if people express themselves on a gender spectrum, and that is an actual thing in an actual society, if we have not fully explained that scientifically, that's an interesting frontier to study. If you want to say it's only sociological, then it's the purview of the social sciences. I don't care who studies it. It's an interesting fact about society that's worth learning about. It's to, to make it to fight someone and say it's not biological, it's just your thing. It's, it's real and it's there. Well, because it's real because it manifests. I think that was a, a really, really interesting back and forth. So I want to go through a bunch of it here. Um, at the beginning, Shapiro says, the left is militating, interesting word, against science. And what he means is, on this issue of um, transgenderism, the left is openly anti-science. That's sort of the point he's trying to make. I do find it hilarious, though, because put that point aside. I, I don't care whether you grant him that or don't grant him that. What the fuck does the right say on climate change? What does the right say on, or to be fair, what do some factions of the right say on vaccines? So for, uh, this is one of the main issues with Shapiro, is that he makes a comment like that, totally broad, sweeping generalization that's just wrong. The left is militating against science. Does everybody on the left uh, take all of their beliefs from science? Of course not. But what a ridiculous, broad generalization. The left is militating against science. He always tries to portray, portray what he views as the other side in the most negative light possible. 
So he doesn't steel man them, he straw mans them. And of course, he does the reverse of that too. He tries to make his side uh, seem, you know, nothing but reasonable. Neil says, the only reason why we're even talking about this issue in today's day and age is because of sports. Because if it wasn't for the sports issue, he says, why, would, why should anybody care? Why wouldn't anybody care? Um, now, I agree with him that the bulk of the conversation is happening when it comes to trans issues in sports. But, you know, there are plenty of people who don't want to let trans people use whatever bathroom they prefer. Um, there are people who don't want to have trans people in the military. There are people who don't want to have trans people as a protected class. Historically in this country, we have, you know, certain minority groups are protected classes because there's a history of some sort of discrimination or oppression against them to one extent or another. It doesn't have to be, you know, uniform and universally bad across the board, but, you know, you could be, if you're Native American or if you're African-American, you're a protected class. There's a list of protected classes uh, in this country because there was a history of, hey, they were discriminated against to one extent or another. There are plenty of people who say they don't want trans people, you know, on that list of protected classes. So unfortunately, it's not just, you know, this issue is relevant in the context of sports. It is relevant in the context of sports, but it is also relevant in other ways and um, I think what Neil would say on those other issues, and I don't know for sure, I don't want to put words in his mouth and thoughts in his head, but I think what he would say is, is like, well, of course they should be, you know, protected, a, a protected class, and there should be anti-discrimination protections against them. Of course they should be allowed in the military. You know, if you can meet the physical requirements, anybody should be allowed in the military if they can meet those physical requirements. Um, and, of course, they should be able to use, you know, whatever bathroom they identify with. I think that's what, uh, what he would say, but I actually don't think that Shapiro agrees with those things. So it does go beyond just sports. But, yes, a big part of the conversation in today's day and age is sports. Uh, then Neil says, what you are biologically, your sex, and how you express yourself, gender, are different. And I like how he makes the point, listen, that's freedom. Like, you're allowed to do that in a free society. And also, he goes on to make this point later on, but it is a manifestation of something that's a real phenomenon. And by the way, you know, historically, there's records going way back of trans people existing. So it's not like it's just this new thing or a fad or whatever. No, it's, it's existed as, for as long as people have existed. Um, Neil says he's trying to think of a way to address the sports issue because the argument that people make is, well if somebody is a man and they go through puberty as a man, then they're a lot more, uh, you know, they have a, a, a bigger frame and they have some physical advantages. They have hormonal advantages. So, you know, Neil says, well, maybe the solution at some point will be do sports, not by segregating it into men and women, but doing, uh, doing it by hormone levels. He says that's one way we can address it. You can tell he's not, like, this isn't the field that he's always, you know, in and immersed in and thinking about, but he is trying to come up with what he views are real solutions. And he says maybe do it by hormone levels. Another thing that others have probably floated is, is this idea of you have a men's league, you have a women's league, and you have a trans men league, and you have a trans women league. Now, that might be a little difficult because 
the numbers are such that, you know, what are you going to do? There's might be one trans man or trans woman in the given area, and so they don't have anybody that they could play the sport with. So that opens up a whole new can of worms and a whole new set of issues. But Neil is trying to think about this to come up with, with solutions. And I don't know what the right-wing reaction is when people float ideas like this. And to be fair, I don't really know what the left-wing reaction is when people float ideas like this. Uh, then we get to the gender spectrum point. Ben Shapiro says gender spectrum is a theory-based idea. And I like Neil's reaction because he says, wait a second, it is an absolute fact that that's how people express themselves. So to call it theoretical is, is kind of misleading because, listen, we can observe it. We can see it. It's happening right now. It's very clear that there are people who are biologically, you know, one sex or the other. But when it comes to gender, there does appear to be a spectrum. And now you could say, hey, that was made up and then people manifested it into reality. Even if I grant you that point, which I don't, it's still here right now. And that's Neil deGrasse Tyson's point. He's like, look, dude, it's a fact. You can look. You can see it. Um, And then he goes on to argue, I don't care whether you put this conversation and this field of research into a science class or a social sciences class, but it's an interesting thing and it should be taught in one or the other. So it's one kind of science or another kind of science, but it is a science. Um, So, yeah, I listen, I I tend to agree with Neil deGrasse Tyson more on this stuff. I guess I, I don't understand the obsession with people on the right um, who can't stop thinking about this issue, can't, you know, let this issue go. I really don't understand it. I don't understand what would possess somebody to, you know, immerse themselves in this nonstop, especially if they're not trans. I just don't get the motivating factor. But unfortunately, I think with a lot of them, the motivating factor might be the thing I stated earlier which is like the whole idea is conservatives are generally very traditional. They like tradition sometimes just for tradition's sake. And when you look at trans issues, people feel, right-wingers feel like that sort of threatens the way we do things now. And, you know, this this is a foreign thing. This is a weird thing. This is a gross thing. It's not a comfortable thing. And it seems like they want to protect the normal, quote-unquote, American family and society, where everybody's got a role and everybody plays their role. And so that's how you get some people who might be of the the opinion, no, I don't want them to use whichever bathroom they align with and identify with, or I don't want anti-discrimination protections for them, um, or I don't want them in the military or whatever. Um, That traditional mindset, that very conservative mindset of, like, a place for everything and everything in its place and – They don't like new things, especially if they think that things are weird and icky. I do think a lot of the the dialogue comes from that place, but I don't agree with that place. If anything, I'm with Anil in the sense that it's just interesting. It's just interesting. Now, listen, you know, I'm what they would call a cisgender white male or whatever. So, I, you know, born, my, my sex is male. My gender is, I guess, I identify as male. I identify with what my sex is, what my biological sex is. And so, and I've never had any moment of like, 
doubt about that or feeling off about that or weird with it, no gender dysphoria or anything like that. And so for somebody in my position, you know, I could sit there and, like, judge everybody who wasn't fortunate enough to be born with the package that they identify with, but I am actually genuinely interested and curious as to how this comes about. Purely nature, are, and it looks like that might be the answer. That there are many people who are just born biologically one sex, but they just feel like they identify with the opposite gender. That could all be nature, which means it's natural, which means it's the opposite of what the conservatives think it is. You know, or it could be sort of like how I think sexuality might develop, which is you get basically uh, you get impacted in your most developmental formative years, and then that sort of is imprinted on your mind, and you can't change it if you, you know, as you get older. It sort of is what it is. So you weren't born trans, but in your developmental years, something happens where you feel like that is what you are, and then there's no looking back, there's no reversing it. I think, honestly, guys, I think that um, it's really similar to your sexuality. With your sexuality, you know what you are by a certain point. You know what you're into. I think gender stuff is probably similar to that, that people have this overwhelming compulsion. Because, no, listen, nobody would actively choose to make themselves more of an outcast in society like that, to make it so that a lot of people, some very high percentage of people look at you like, well, that's weird. Nobody would actively choose a more difficult situation and a more difficult life like that. Like, let me pick the hardest path I possibly could to go down, because, you know, the statistics when it comes to trans people are overwhelming in, in a negative direction in the sense that there's a, a lot of suicide, there's a lot of crime against them. It's tough. It's tough. So the only, if somebody does the transition thing, they really, really, really believe it and mean it, and, and it is them. That is who they are. So I'm interested in that fact. That's sort of fascinating that it manifests in reality like that. So just like we have people who are born male and they feel male, we have people who are born female and they feel female, it's really not that weird or foreign a concept if you really think about it that many people are born male and feel female and, or they're born female and they feel male. And, you know, I, I forget this person's name, and I apologize for that, but early on in Secular Talk, maybe like 2014 or 2015, somebody reached out to me who's a fan of the show, and they're trans. And they basically said, they explained to me. Now, this is anecdotal. This is one person. You know, you take it with a grain of salt if you'd like. But they basically explained to me that they were miserable and they were basically suicidal until they um, got gender surgery to changed their gender and took the hormones and everything. And now they said they feel great and they feel like they're themselves and they're happy. And, you know, I don't know what percentage of trans people that's the answer for, but I do know that anecdotally, at least this one person who I talked to, I believe them. I believe them, 100%. And so that's worth studying. And you can't just swat it aside. It's like, man, it's anti-scientific. Anything that exists can be studied through science. We know trans issues exist. So look at it with an open mind and study it and research it and figure out what it is and use that information to then make life better for trans people and better for everybody. And so, yeah, I don't get the obsession with this issue from the right. 
Um, and it looks to me like that's how Neil feels too. He's basically like, well, number one, we live in a free country. People can and should be able to do whatever they want. And number two, who cares? They're not hurting anybody. Let them do whatever they want. And if there are issues that come up where there are real issues, let's figure out a solution, like the transports thing. But unfortunately, as Neil also points out, there is no clean answer there, you know? There is no, like, obvious black and white, like, this is what you do thing. It's debatable. It's debatable to try to figure out what to do. Um, whether you just let um, trans women into women's sports and trans men into men's sports, uh, whether you have trans women league and trans men league along with the men and women's league, whether you do it by hormone levels, um, you know, I don't have the answers to that. I don't. But what I do know is in society – Everybody should be treated equally and everybody should be treated fairly and there shouldn't be discrimination against any of these people. And it strikes me that that's definitely Neil's position and he's a little bit baffled that uh, there's such a, there's a weird and, and very strong pushback on trans stuff. There's sort of an obsession against it in a way. And Neil's like, I don't, like, why do you care? Let people do whatever they're going to do. That's called freedom. And when there is an issue, let's figure it out scientifically and let's study it scientifically, because the point that I don't think a lot of people on the right grasp is that, of course it's real, and of course it's natural, because it's existing in nature, so then it should become not trying to explain it away or swat it aside or act like it's illegitimate. Then the question becomes, well, let's study it and see how this came about and why it is. That's the whole point of science. And Neil says, I don't care if it's science, science, or social sciences, where you look into it, but we should look into it, because it's interesting and it's fascinating, and it's no reason to you know, dislike people or go after people or discriminate against them or whatever. Okay, next. So Tommy Lauren, the other day, um, tweeted something that came across my feed, and man, did this trigger me. This really, really, really got under my skin. So she said, there's no doubt some have it easier in this country, that's the qualifier, ready? But, but, if you spend your time and energy making excuses, you might not be oppressed, you might just be lazy. So this is Tommy just trying to force a personal responsibility narrative onto everything. And this is what I like to call a square peg round hole situation, where the narrative doesn't fit, but she's just trying to jam it in. And so, you know, I responded and I said, is nobody oppressed? What about wrongfully imprisoned people? Full-time workers who can't make rent? Fired folks who got axed due to COVID through no fault of their own? Patient denied health insurance coverage on a technicality? Nonviolent offender whose life is ruined over nothing? And I could go on and on. 4% of the people on death row didn't do anything wrong. What about an innocent person who was executed? What about the report that just came out that you can't live, you can't get a two-bedroom apartment anywhere in the country on a minimum wage job. And in only 7% of the country can you get a one-bedroom apartment on a minimum wage job. Are those people not oppressed? Are they, not, are they just lazy? Is that what that is? Is it just lazy when a recession or a depression hits and basically over the course of a week we go from having like a 5% or 6% unemployment rate and it shoots up to 12%? Are those people who got laid off, are they just lazy? It's 
amazing to me the length that they go to to try to hold on to the personal responsibility thing like a baby holding on to its blanket. You can't always go to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, personal responsibility. It's all on you. There are plenty of people who follow the rules and do everything exactly right, never hurt a fly in their entire lives, and they're still screwed by the system. Sometimes the system is the problem. The system is the problem. So anyway, that look, and, and the final point to make on this is nobody is actually against personal responsibility. Nobody. I've never talked to anybody who was like, fuck personal responsibility, bro. Fuck people trying to take care of their own business and being individualists. I've never met a single person who ever believed that ever. You could, from somebody who's on the right to the leftiest of the lefty folks. Nobody's ever been like, I'm against personal responsibility. Every, that, that's the duh position. Like, obviously, you got to do shit. At some point, you got to get a job or you got to start your own business or you got to go out there in the real world. You got to pay your bills. It's not a thing that anybody's like, actually, I don't want to do any of that. And Give me the Cheetos and the cookie dough ice cream, and I'm just going to sit on the couch for the rest of my life and rot away. Nobody does that. Even the laziest people, they want to do that for like half the week. <laughs> and then the other half the week, they want to go do, you know, something interesting or entertaining or fun or productive that makes them feel good. So I, I just want to, I sound like Marco Rubio, I just want to dispel of this notion that anybody's against personal responsibility. You know, the fact of the matter is only 15% of the country feels fulfilled at their job. You know, so the overwhelming majority of people don't even want to do their job, and they're doing their fucking jobs. They're doing them. And so to call people lazy or say they don't have personal responsibility, oh, you're not oppressed, it's, it's just, ironically, it's intellectually lazy. Everybody is in favor of one extent or another, to one degree or another, personal responsibility. The question that we're having when it comes to politics is, what things should be off the table? What are the things from the collective perspective that we should do? Should we have, you know... Obviously, we should have taxpayer-funded roads and bridges and cops. That's an obvious thing. We should have health care so when you get sick, you get help and you're okay. We should have education so that you actually have a chance at making it in life. Child care. So that's the, the purpose of politics is figure out what should we do as a collective, what should be off the table. That's the whole purpose of politics. That's the whole point of politics. And... She makes it seem like anybody who ever says anything about being oppressed is just lazy, and it's all on them. Well, there you have it, guys. See, this is what the conservative mindset offers you, this. Everything needs to be viewed from the individual perspective, from the personal perspective. Anything, if you're not doing well, it's just a personal moral failing on your part. That's it. You can never point at a system. You can never point at society. Sometimes people do have issues that are personal, but... A lot of times they're not. A lot of times it's macroeconomic things or government policy or whatever and denies all that, swats it aside, says if you're oppressed, you might just be lazy. Well, there you go. There's the level of commentary you get from this airhead.
All right, next. We're going to talk about coal miner strike. So this story is just astonishing. The media has been shamefully ignoring a historic coal miner strike. This is something that's now been going on for, uh, well, actually, you know what? Let me go ahead and go through the specifics of it. I'm going to save that fact for later. Let me tell you, I'll tell you how long this strike has been going on in a little bit, okay? So... In 2016, uh, there was a takeover of a failing coal company by this new coal company called Warrior Met. And when that happened, there were massive profits for the buyer alongside, you know, lower pay and fewer benefits for the workers. So they went in there, they cut pay for the workers, they cut benefits, and they made it so that they became profitable. In fact, over time, they got very profitable. Um, So this is in Tuscaloosa County, Alabama, and the workers were caught in this acquisition issue because they also really weakened safety measures. So the company that came in really weakened safety measures for the workers. And understand that coal mining is one of the nation's most dangerous jobs. So there were a number of, there are multiple charges of unfair labor practices that were uh, levied against Warrior Met from the workers. So again, review it. Company comes in in 2016, buys this failing coal company, cuts benefits, uh, cuts pay, weakens safety measures, and there's been multiple charges of unfair labor practices against the company. So the miners are saying, when they came in, they said, as soon as we start seeing profits, your wages are going to go up. Your wages are going to increase with the profits. So The profits have gone up, but management reneged on this, and they failed to restore pay and benefits during the contract renegotiations with the workers. So the United Mine Workers of America called a strike. They said, we're not going to stand for this. We're going to strike. Get this. 1,100 miners have now been on strike for four months over a thousand miners on strike for four months. It's gotten really bad, guys. Some miners were arrested in May while protesting. The company's responsible for that. Miners went to New York City to try to protest the hedge fund that's backing Warrior Met, namely BlackRock, the same assholes that are buying up all these houses and making it unaffordable for a lot of people. Uh, They thought, hey, maybe we'll get some coverage and we'll get some legs under this thing if we go to New York and protest there. They did. Barely a blip. Uh, And then on July 10th, the strike passed its 100-day mark. Two days earlier, the wife of a striking miner was hit by a car. And the union is saying that the violence was perpetrated by people working for the company. They're saying management is running over workers or the worker's wife. And um, since the media hasn't picked up on this, now hedge funds are increasing their investment in Warrior Met. 1,100 coal miners been on strike for four months. Guys, CNN, 
MSNBC, Fox News, I kid you not, have said nothing. Not a word. Not a peep. Not even a passing reference. The revolution will not be televised. I mean, you can see Noam Chomsky's manufacturing consent in real time here. Because the people who work at these big media corporations, who are they more in alignment with? The coal miners who are doing the hard work or whoever owns the company? They're in the same class as management and the hedge funders who who are behind it, BlackRock. So they represent way more the interests of management and the hedge funds. And so they, they'll just basically be silent. And that's what this is. They're totally silent. Totally silent, haven't said anything. Now, to be fair, local news has picked up on it, credit to them. And some independent news has picked up on it, of course. But CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, nothing. Even when it came to print outlets, I think it was, it was the nation was one, and then there was one other that I'm blanking on that, uh, that covered it. But this is a huge deal. It's the first time in four decades you've had a coal miner strike, and it's being ignored. And this is how workers get crushed. You have corporate media representing corporate interests, and they're not even giving you an accurate picture of what's happening in this country. So people don't know. They don't know that this is going on and these workers are fighting just to get back to the pay that they had previously. Never mind raises. Unacceptable. This is how bad corporate media is. This is why, like, when we went to Afghanistan, by the time we were in, like, year six or seven, they just stopped covering the fact that we're at war in Afghanistan. And all the corruption that was going on, all the war profiteering, all the waste... $7 trillion wasted. They said almost nothing about it. That's what the media does. CNBC has on CEOs of corporations to tell them everything's fine right before we have giant crashes. They do propaganda for corporate America. All of them do propaganda for corporate America. With MSNBC, it just happens to be the Democratic Party as well that they do propaganda for. With Fox News, it's the Republican Party. But they're all doing corporate propaganda. That's why people don't know when a new report comes out that medical debt doubled in the past three or four years. They don't know, because mainstream media doesn't cover it. They don't know 80% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. They don't know. They don't know that our infrastructure gets a grade of, of D plus or C minus. They don't know. They don't know. Because it's not covered and it's not talked about. So everybody feels isolated and alienated and walled off from everybody else. But oftentimes, we can overcome it by coming together getting the word out there through independent new media and spreading it far and wide through social media if you can, you know, that's our only way to beat these people. Corporate media is never going to cover the the interesting and important things that they need to cover. They just suck at their jobs and they represent corporate interests. They're never going to do the right thing. All they're going to do is manufacture consent for Wall Street and the military industrial complex, for big corporations. That's their job. They hire people who will never rock the boat. But our job in independent new media, and your job as viewers, is to spread the word far and, far and wide, have solidarity with these workers. And, uh, you know, I hope that these things grow, and I hope that these guys can, you know, win out in the long run. But they're not going to win unless they have help. 
And they need reinforcements. They need the cavalry, for sure. And it's just such a crime. They're so bad at their job. Again, you guys have to come to an idiot YouTuber with a loud mouth like me with no advertising budget whatsoever. you got to come to me to hear about this, which is a story that should have been big news in mainstream media, but they don't literally don't even make a passing reference to it. It's unacceptable. Okay. All right, we're done, guys. I love you, baby. Everybody have a great rest of your day. We have a great Crystal Kylan Friends coming up this week. Definitely check it out. Dan Price is going to be on, the world's greatest CEO. (laughs) All right, y'all, have a good one. Peace. With Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.